0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 on page 575 of the Pew Bible. This morning we continue our Advent series in Isaiah's foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. These prophecies and their fulfillments in Christ encourage us to trust God he does what he says he will do his word can be counted on they also give us hope God promises a future that is better than the past you can persevere then through difficult circumstances confident in Christ that this is not all there is We've already seen in both reading and preaching Isaiah 7 that this Messiah who's coming is uh, virgin born. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 9 that the child born will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the weight of the kingdom of God will rest on his shoulders, and the welfare of the people of God belong to him. And he will bring light into darkness. And now here in Isaiah 11, we learn not only will he be light in darkness, he will be life in death. Let's think about that this morning. From Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 through verse 10. This is the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child ...shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. Grant That the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why is Isaiah foretelling this when he's prophesying dark times loom? Before Israel. Uh, Israel is divided into northern and so- southern tribes. The northern tribes are going to be plundered and pulverized and deported very shortly by the Assyrian army it's descending upon them. The Assyrians, the fiercest empire known on the earth in that day. Why? Well, if you go back and read through Isaiah, it's because the Lord is using the Assyrians in judgment against the northern kingdoms for the northern kingdoms' 200-year history of apostasy. They had abandoned the Lord, and so the Lord in chastisement gives them over into the hand of their enemies. Now, in the southern kingdoms, they're governed by King Ahaz. This is in Judah... And King Ahaz has his hands full with uh, enemies all around, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Syrians, and even the northern kingdom gives him trouble. And Isaiah speaks to him and warns him not to trust in his own military might and not to seek an alliance with the Assyrians to rescue him, but rather to put his trust in and his hopes on The Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel. But in the 730s, just before 722 and Assyria's destruction of the northern kingdom, King Ahaz appeals to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pelassar. He appeals to him for relief. As Ralph Davis puts it, he preferred Assyria's power over Yahweh's promises And so Ahaz puts his trust in an earthly king instead of the Lord God. And since Ahaz wanted the Assyrians, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, sees that he gets them. And he gets them with a vengeance. Eventually, Assyria, under Sennacherib, will choke Judah within an inch of its life. If you can believe Sennacherib's propaganda machine no doubt perhaps a bit exaggerated he conquered 46 walled cities and he deported over 200,000 Israelites so what's going on then gloom is about to descend dramatically on the people and David's kingdom the kingdom of King David and the dynasty that God promised to him is going to appear to be whacked nearly to the ground, to a stump. And Isaiah proclaims to those people the coming of the Messiah. It's as if he says, the Messiah is your only true hope. Put your trust in him. And so what does he tell us about that Messiah? Let me invite you to consider four things from this passage. He shows you the ancestry of the Messiah, verse one. He shows you the adequacy of the Messiah, verses two through five. He shows you the achievements of the Messiah in verses six through nine. And he shows you the attractiveness of this Messiah at verse 10. Consider, in the first place, the ancestry of this Messiah, verse one, and we'll touch on verse 10. And what I want you to see here is just how hopeless the kingdom of God can at times appear to be. Notice verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's this talking about? It's talking about the divinic kingdom that will look like a shoot or a sapling, a little twig springing up. Isaiah takes you here to the stump of Jesse to see that. Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. David comes from Jesse. David is the first great king. Now Isaiah points the people to a new twig and a new shoot that will spring forth from Jesse. So what you have here is kind of the picture of a, of a new and even a better King David. Another one coming from David's father, Jesse, a sapling. But before that sapling can come, David's line, David's kingdom, David's dynasty has to be cut off. It will look like trees cut down and decimated. It will look like a forest fire has burned away all the health and life. And what we know in the following history is that the last ruler in Judah will, in about uh, 150 plus years from the writing of Isaiah, will be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar under the Babylonian Empire. And the last ruler, before he's taken captive and deported, he will have his children killed in front of him. And then he will have his eyes put out so that the last thing he ever sees is the death of his own dynasty and the cutting off of the kingdom of King David. Things are going to get worse, much worse before they get better, but better they will be. And so he tells us about this stump. The royal line first must become... A stump. Stumps don't look very promising. Stumps seem like they're demolished or diminished. They appear to be dried up and dead, so often is the case. And yet, strange things can happen around stumps. We have a shrub, a volunteer, not planted by us, shrub growing out at our mailbox, and uh, we keep chopping it back. Uh, the branches and the shoots the keep coming up and a couple of times a year we knock it back to the ground. But year over year it keeps sprouting up. What seems dead can be in fact very much alive. And Isaiah is saying that to Israel. It may seem that all hope is lost but all hope is not lost. It's not hopeless because the shoot of Jesse is also the root of Jesse. Look at verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people. So this is a, a paradox he's presenting here. The root of Jesse implies that he, he's the source or the origin of Jesse. And yet being a sapling from Jesse implies that he flows out of and has his life from Jesse. In other words, he both comes from Jesse and he precedes Jesse. He is the origin of Jesse as well as he is the one who springs from as the offspring of Jesse. And so you have here, at least as a hint, something of the humanity and deity of the Messiah. You have one who is human... Coming out of Jesse, a very human line. But on the other hand, he's the divine source of Jesse. He precedes Jesse. And that ought not be a surprise to you as you get to Isaiah 11, because he's already said the Messiah is what? Emmanuel, which means God with us, Isaiah 7. And he's already said he's the mighty God, El Gabor, the mighty warrior God. And so he's God and man in one person. Now, obviously, the New Testament will unpack that in greater detail. But this is why there is hope. This is why things are not hopeless. Though, before all this transpires, the tree needs to be chopped down and the stump needs to be laid bare. And that's the way it Sometimes is in the kingdom of God. It can look weak, it can look frail, it can look small, it can look dry, it can look dead. Like Lazarus in a tomb, dead four days, his body decayed. Jesus shows up and says, as Mary and Martha are weeping for their lost brother, and he says, Roll the stone back. And they object. He smells. And he says, Roll it back. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out, walks out. The picture of life and health, the dead raised. God so often begins and God renews his work in the context of that which appears hopeless and in ruin and helpless and weak. And so it's going to be for Israel. And this prophecy then will be their hope for generations to come. It will be what they have to cling to for hope. And so we know that by the time of Jesus, not only have the Assyrians overrun the northern kingdom, but the Babylonians have overrun the southern kingdom, and David hasn't had a descendant on the throne of David for some 500 years, half a millennium. And then the rose blooms. There's hope. Because of Jesse's shoot, who's also Jesse's root. That's the first thing I want you to see, the ancestry of the Messiah. Now the second is the adequacy of God's Messiah, verses 2 through 5. He tells you about this Messiah. He's going to be equipped equipped by the holy spirit of god beyond measure or without restraint notice verse 2 and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and you remember that when jesus came he was conceived by the holy spirit in the womb of the virgin mary you remember that jesus was filled with the spirit even in his mother's womb that he lived in dependence upon the help of the lord and his spirit and when he came publicly to enter his ministry the spirit descended on him in the form of a dove a dove resting upon him and all throughout his life He leaned upon the spirit, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and counsel and might. The spirit helped him do what God called him to do. He was equipped by that spirit. And what was the effect of that equipping? Notice five things here. First, it says he'll have a God-centered heart. Or verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What's the effect of the spirit? He from the heart delights in the Lord, and honors and respects the Lord. This is in contrast, of course, to King Ahaz, who's being spoken of uh, as uh, an idolater. Ahaz who put his own children to death in service and worship of false deities. This king, however, will fear the Lord. He'll know and respect the Lord. And so he will rule in truth. Notice the language of end of verse 3. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. He doesn't make snap decisions swayed by the persuasive speech of liars. He doesn't give weight to who talks first. He doesn't give weight to who talks loudest. He doesn't give weight to who is the better social media propaganda. He doesn't give weight to who can buy the more expensive Lawyers? No, he gets to the heart of the matter. He knows exactly what's going on. And he judges based on the truth. And he judges in justice. Notice that language, verse 4. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's impartial and he's equitable. He always does what is right and fair. And he can't be manipulated by promise and he can't be bribed with money. You know that so often where there is corruption in the courts of law, it's the poor who suffer first and suffer most. So often because the rich have either connections or resources to grease the wheels of justice. But when this judge judges, he does so righteously and it is the salvation of the poor and the needy and the helpless. He doesn't overlook the unimportant People, so to speak and if he then gets if they get their rights looked after then you can be most certain that all will get their rights looked after under this judge as he protects even the most vulnerable is what this passage is teaching us and so Jesus comes and what does he do well even in his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection he acts As a judge in disputes, you remember the woman caught in adultery in John 8, she's brought to him these Pharisees, these legalistic, righteous, -righteous, self-righteous, Bible-toting religious leaders find a couple caught in adultery, and who do they show up with? Not the man, but the woman, the more vulnerable. She's under the threat of stoning Not the man in the situation. She's going to be treated more harshly by them. And to her self-righteous accusers, Jesus said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all drop their rocks and turn away. And Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. He's a righteous judge. And not only will he rule in truth and in justice, but he will rule with power. Look at the end of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. This judge is no paper tiger. The wicked who pervert justice will get what is coming to them unless they repent and receive mercy. Calvin says by the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips is it's as if Christ will have no need to borrow aid from others to cast down his enemies and to strike down everything that opposes his government for a mere breath or word will be enough this is the one who in John 18 confronted by a mob that had come out to arrest him a mob carrying weapons a mob made of seasoned soldiers they he said to them who do you seek and they answered him Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus said to them I am and simply hearing him they drew back and fell down to the ground in amazement just two words I am and he knocked them over And then he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go, referring to his disciples. And they let his disciples go. Because they obeyed the word he spoke. Because even with just the breath of his voice, he exercises justice. He rules with power. And notice finally here, he's always ready to do the work well. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He's girded up. He's ready for battle. He isn't caught napping. He's never absent without leave. He never has hours unaccounted for as this righteous judge. And now as you think about a judge like that, if that scares you, well maybe it should. If you fear you can't stand before the bar of his justice, you're right. You can't. If you know your own heart, if you know you're well enough, if you know yourself well enough, you know that should he weigh you in the scales of justice, you will be found wanting. You will have no defense of yourself before this judge but if you see that about yourself then just say Lord have mercy upon me don't give me what I deserve be merciful to me and he's a judge who delights to show mercy because he's the judge who came the just for the unjust to bring us to God by his death for the unjust upon the cross there's always mercy for those who ask he delights in God he looks on the heart he protects the weak and the helpless he punishes the wicked he's always ready to do the work well and you can have mercy this is, this is a fantastic judge to have there's no deficiency in him here he's exactly what his kingdom needs he's exactly what his people need how should we respond to him There was a guy named Arthur John Gossip. He was a pastor in Scotland in the early 1900s. And he preached a sermon just after his wife died. A sermon he entitled, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And he said as he preached the sermon, I do not think that any one of you will challenge my right to speak today. And he alluded to in the sermon uh, a terrible killing time. In the history of Scotland, going back a few hundred years to the Scottish Covenanters, there was an incident in 1684 when a, a wicked government enforcer and persecutor of the people of God, a man named Claverhouse, he, well, he, he blew out the brains of John Brown of Priesthill for being a godly man who <laughs> clung to the truth of the gospel, and he did it at his door in front of his wife, and his children, and then Claverhouse turned to the aggrieved wife, Isabel Brown, and asks, "What do you think of your husband now, woman?" And she said to him, "I always thought greatly of him, but I think more of him now." And John Gossip, in his sermon then, continues and says, "I always thought greatly of the Christian faith." But I think more of it now, far more. Having lost his wife, it meant all the more. And I think Isaiah is here saying, how should you respond to the sight of a just king like this? You should respond and say, I thought a lot of Christ. But now I think more of him. He's adequate for all my needs. How satisfying that ought to be. Now then he goes on to speak of the achievement of his rule and reign. What kind of world will this king bring about? Verses 6 to 9, notice he restores peace. He makes things the way they ought to be. Look, you see a picture of it in verses 6 to 8. The wolf, it says, verse 6, will lie down with the lamb. The wolf doesn't devour the lamb, it dwells with it and that language of dwelling is actually the language of hospitality it's the language of inviting a stranger in to visit with you and remain in your home for a while here the the little lamb a a tasty morsel opens her front door to the wolf and says welcome come on in suppers on the stove it's not me you understand And likewise, it says at the end of a long day together, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, right? They're lying down. They're going to sleep. They're going to rest side by side. And the baby calf, it says, easily the most vulnerable one. And the fattened calf, it says, tender, not tough, juicy, not dry. They get along, it says, with the lion, With the king of cats, you know, a bird landed on our window screen one day and our uh, mostly sweet, friendly, uh, not aloof house cat who only hates one in a family of nine and loves everybody else, our little cat Silver suddenly bounded across the carpet, launched itself at the bird with obvious murderous intentions of heart. And the bird was saved by a thin sheet of glass covering. I, I know what Silver was thinking, as it, and I know what it's always thinking, as it sits on that windowsill twitching its tail. It's thinking, my, what? tiny tasty treats you are little birdies if I could just get close enough to you I'd gobble you up that's what cats do and yet in the kingdom of this Messiah by the peace he establishes the tastiest and the easiest prey sleep peacefully with the predator why their natures are changed It's not just that they've been well-tamed, even their young do this. It's been propagated through the species, you understand. And verse 7, it says, the cow and the bear graze together. The lion eats straw like the ox. Carnivores become herbivores. And so it says a little child, a toddler, can command them. Verse 8, not even the cobra or the viper or other venomous snake will pose a threat even to the youngest of children. What have you got here? You have a picture, and it's the 100-acre wood. It's Winnie the Pooh out with his bodies and Christopher Robin, except in this picture, Eeyore is no longer depressed. Tigger is no longer obnoxious. Piglet isn't fearful. Owl can spell O W. L, and there aren't a swarm of bees to chase Winnie into the pond. It's, it's life as it ought to be. It's paradise found, right? The world we long for. In this world, the strong eat the weak. The rich oppress the poor. But that's not how it was from the beginning. And that's not how it will be in the Messiah's reign is what this is saying now that's the picture of it what's the doctrine of it verse 9 very explicitly they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea He's, he's thinking of mount zion the holy city of god and there will be a comprehensive peace and it will be a microcosm of a much wider blessing that will cover the whole earth. The cause of the peace is what? The whole earth, not just Jerusalem, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And so peace will reign everywhere. People are only truly at peace with God and one another when they're full of the knowledge of God, To know him is our restoration. To know him is eternal life. And this eternal life he speaks of looks forward and ahead to the garden of God in the new heavens and new earth. But it's put in the language of the first garden, Eden, where our first parents dwelled in paradise without hatred, without violence, without murder, without death. And then it says, under this king's hand, right, the kingdom is going to come in such a way that the predator and the prey can play together. Enemies are reconciled. Some here, as you think about when will this be, some here see a millennial reign of Christ on the earth before the new heavens and the new earth. Some see here a spiritual reign of Christ, uh, either a period of a thousand years or a long indefinite period, but, but a period right before the return of Christ when the gospel will spread throughout the earth. And not that every last individual will be converted, but the gospel will so infect the earth in a positive way. And there will be so many brought to faith that these kinds of conditions of life Uh, will manifest that's called post-millennialism it's not my view my view is that this is a picture of the eternal state the new heavens and new earth the home of righteousness where all is made right with the world the messiah will impose righteousness and peace will follow that future peace is already and not yet. That future peace is not entirely future. The kingdom of heaven has broken into this world. Those who belong to Christ have a foretaste of that greater peace which will one day exist as the peace of Christ reconciles enemies even in this world. There's a missionary to cannibals who tells the story of two Maori tribal chiefs who had come together to a celebration of the Lord's Supper, having their tribes having converted to Christ. And one of them, Tamati Wiremu Puna, came trembling to the Lord's Supper. His body shuddered, and it was observable by all. And so after the service, someone asked him about his deep emotion, and he said that, well, the other chief, Panapa, head of another Maori tribe had in previous years killed and eaten his father this was a tribe of cannibals converted and he said only the gospel only the gospel which gave me a new nature could make me eat the same bread and drink the same cup with the murderer of my father how is that possible Because Jesus brings peace and reconciles enemies by bearing away what our sin deserves so we don't have to hold it against one another. Jesus brings strangers together. He brings even enemies together as brothers and sisters who live at peace with one another. That's the achievement he makes. Now look how attractive he is then, verse 10 in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. They'll come seeking. This is why Paul in Romans 15 says, I want to go to Spain, and I want to preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached, because I want the Gentiles to enjoy the blessing of Jesus, because, and he quotes here, Romans 15 verse 12, he quotes and references Isaiah here. Because this branch, this sprout this root of jesse is for not just jews not just the northern tribes not just the southern tribes but for the nations for the gentiles too every tribe and tongue and people and language and so isaac watts celebrates this in song joy to the world we're about to sing it it's based on psalm 98 now psalm 98 is about the full and final effects of the coming of this savior his second advent and watts when he wrote joy to the world had in mind the second coming of jesus not really the first coming of jesus though joy to the world is traditionally sung by the people of god in celebration of the first coming but we must sing it in prospect of the second coming when we sing no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found he rules the world with truth and grace and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love that is the world we long for it is the world god promises so never despair When things look dry. When things look shriveled up. When it seems like there's just a stump. What could God do with that? God could do everything with that. In the fullness of time, he sent his son as he promised. And he came. And in the fullness of time, he will send his son again as he promised. And he will come. Put your trust in him. Put your hope in him. Wait in eager expectation for that rule, that reign in all its glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for great hopes that we have in Jesus. And thank you that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul that Jesus has already run on ahead of us now to appear in your presence forever and to bring us with him as the spoils of his victory. Grant us that confidence in him and help us then. Help us in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.